The theme this morning is, is love. Quite deliberately, we were sort of bringing the year to a conclusion with our studies in the fruit of the Spirit and very much deliberately reaching a climax, as it were, with a consideration of love. But of course, today being Christmas Day, um, it's very difficult to, and probably even inappropriate, to, to, uh, to ignore that. So I'm, I'm, I've tried to sort of marry the two, if you will, in a way that I think, well, I hope, will be, will be helpful. Um, I, want to, I want to begin by saying, Steve, I was planning on going kayaking tomorrow. <laughs> but let me say, I, I use the term was past tense. That was my plan. I'm, I'm, looking, I'm open to a plan B. If anybody's got any ideas of how I could entertain myself tomorrow, I'll be, be open to them. Um, I, want to, I want to sort of introduce this lesson this way by establishing my credentials as a, uh, a Santa-bearing fan of Christmas. That's the, that's the Wilson household display. Mom, you'll notice the tilt to the American heritage there. Uh, Dad and Caitlin. I wish I'd have thought to, they've got lights on them. Um, they look really good at night. And so, if you still have any doubt, the Wilsons went to the um, Redland City Council Christmas on the Coast thing this year. And so there we are behind the camera taking that shot with uh, Santa's elves, etc. So I'm a fan of Christmas. But as a Christian, it really conflicts me. It really is a Mm, a point of a point of tension, and and I, I guess I want to sort of talk a little bit about that today. When we think of Christmas, as many of us probably, the vast majority of us right now are thinking more about the lunch, the Christmas lunch with family that lies ahead, rather than anything I have to say up here. And I, that's fine. I understand that, and that's that image that I think, in a very healthful, appropriate way, has become associated with Christmas. It is a time of Family. It is a time of uh, celebration. It's a time of gift giving. Um, I'm in a particularly good mood today because the Wilsons have their Christmas thing on Christmas Eve. So I'm coming in this morning off the back of a very, very, very nice meal last night. Um, a generous portion of pecan pie. If anybody is acquainted with pecan pie, you'll know how delicious that is. Um, and you know, Santa was pretty kind to me this year, as he as he usually is. So I'm a happy, I'm a happy, happy chappy. And, and I think that picture kind of summarises the image that that most of us would have. Hopefully, hopefully, in our own experience, but it's certainly it's the idealised picture. But I do want to note, as, and it's in, I'm very interested, um, Fred earlier this morning in our prayer group made mention of those for whom Christmas is not all, you know, bells and whistles sort of thing. Christmas time for many people can be quite a difficult time. And, and of course, Craig this morning with that um, very cultural Wordsworth poem. Longfellow. There you go. Wish I hadn't said that now. <laughs> How embarrassing. Um, very cultural poem, uh, but, but highlighting the reality of, of, of the harshness of life and sometimes how that can be difficult to reconcile with the, with the ideal. Um, here, I've just got a simple quote. This is from um, 
Relationships Australia, so very relevant to our our time and place. Um, this is a quote from Helen Poynton, a regional manager of Relationships Australia in Queensland. Christmas tends to be a time of more. More family visits, more food shopping, more present buying, more alcohol consumed, more spending. This season of more can exacerbate families under strain. This can lead to domestic violence in the household. Um, most of you be aware in the past I've worked in community services and the organisation that I last worked with, um, I would frequently contribute an article to a, a small magazine that they would publish and, and had limited distribution among their clients. And one year leading up to Christmas, I, I wrote an article highlighting how difficult it was, acknowledging how difficult it was for many, particularly our clients who were, the majority of them were carers, so caring for, it might be a, um, um, an elderly man or a woman caring for their, their husband or their wife who might be struggling with dementia, for example, all the way to parents, young parents often uh, of uh, children with uh, a congenital disability, all the common denominator was that they were in the caring role and for many of them, uh, again, if you've had any experience with this, very often when people are thrown into a caring role, oftentimes it's effectively being, being pushed into a position of poverty where they're not able to work anymore. They rather have to devote full time to the care of their loved one and as a result of that they're dependent upon welfare um, and, and, and we're not particularly generous uh, in that in that regard, so financially it's a very difficult lot, a very difficult burden to carry. And when you add on to that uh, the stresses of the expectations, imagine a parent on on very limited incomes, very limited means, happy to to be barely be able to put food on a table week by week, and the expectation that they provide these hundreds of dollars worth of gifts for their kids. We can all relate to that. My point is that Christmas while ideally is a time of much joy and happiness and sharing and blessing, for many, many people it is a very difficult time. What would Jesus make of Christmas? Now I make this comment with this in mind, even this morning it's become apparent in talking to a few brethren. Um, Christians have quite diverse opinions it seems about Christmas. Some Christians are very opposed to Christmas and think that we should just ignore it altogether. Others are very happy to embrace uh, Christmas as, as, a, as a special time of year. Um, and, and so when I ask this question for myself, I'm, I'm reminded that um, it seems certainly that Jesus was okay with celebrating Hanukkah, uh, which is an extra-biblical Jewish cultural festival. So I want to say for those of us that are of a restorationist perspective, and by that I mean we're concerned about being apostolic in our teaching and in our practice. Um, the tendency of some has been, well, Christmas isn't in the Bible and therefore we should have nothing, we should shun it, we should have nothing to do with it. I'm not so sure that we can rush to that position without first considering what Jesus did about a similar cultural celebration in, in his day. Now, the word Hanukkah, you may or may not have heard of it before, it means dedication and it's celebrated each year as the Feast of Dedication or the Festival of Lights. It occurs during Israel's winter. This year, 2022, it's being celebrated between December the 18th to the 26th. So it's an eight-day festival. 
and you'll notice it overlaps on this year, overlaps with, with Christmas, the 25th of December. And you'll notice in the, uh, the graphics there, it, it carries the same sort of sense as, as Christmas. If, if, it did, if it said Happy Christmas instead of Happy Hanukkah, we probably wouldn't notice anything, anything out of place. It celebrates, Hanukkah celebrates the success of the Maccabean revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes and the restoration of Jewish worship with the rededication of the second temple in 165 BC. Now those who've been through my Daniel class will say, oh yes, I know all about that. I know all about that. Um, a very, very important moment in the history of Israel, Judah, in that intertestamental period. In 165 BC, they came close to being extinguished by Antiochus Epiphanes. But against all odds, many would say miraculously, classic David versus Goliath situation, the Jews were able to win back their independence from the superpower of the day. The superpower had moved in, had desecrated the temple, had offered pigs in sacrifice to Greek gods. Horrendous from the Jewish mindset. Three years later, with the Maccabean revolt, they were able to reclaim and rededicate the temple and reinstitute the rightful, the lawful uh, worship of God according to the teachers of Moses. We note that by the first century AD, the national celebration had become associated with Israel's hope of deliverance by God's Messiah from Roman rule. So a national celebration, a cultural celebration, nothing to do with the law of Moses, but celebrating a very significant event in the history of of Israel. And all the more so at the time of Jesus, it also carried this idea or carried this hope of deliverance once again. Deliverance in the past, 165 BC, from the oppression of Antiochus Epiphanes and the the Seleucid Empire, the Greeks. But now under Roman oppression, that same hope, that same longing. So when this year by year, this festival of lights, dedication, Hanukkah would roll around, it would reignite the enthusiasm and and the excitement about the prospect of Messiah coming. That's the context in which we read this from the Gospel of John. Then came the Feast of Hanukkah at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was in the temple courtyard walking in Solomon's porch. The Jews who were gathered there around Jesus spoke to him and they said, how long will you keep us waiting? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Now you might miss it if you're not careful in reading of that text. Here is Jesus on the celebration that that, that highlights the rededication of the temple. His presence in the temple complex, I think any reasonable person would conclude, represents at some level an approval of the celebration. And this explains to us why this question, his presence at the temple at this time, during Hanukkah, prompts the people to say, are you the one we're looking for? Are you the Messiah? Don't keep us in suspense any longer. Let us, let us know. So I want to suggest to you confidently that when it comes to cultural celebrations, 
whether we talk about, as we know elsewhere in John, weddings or something like Hanukkah, that Jesus was quite okay with it. Quite okay with it. And I want to hasten to add that, you know, because Christmas has such a, an interesting history, become intertwined with, uh, with the Christian faith and whatnot, the reality is today in a culture like uh, Australia, for example, um, a largely secular culture, we're able to celebrate Christmas for the most part, for most Australians, without much regard, if any regard, towards Christianity or the birth of Christ. You can go, you can go most places these days and you can hear jingle bells and all that sort of stuff and, and, and go without any reference to Jesus and people will still be satisfied. We've celebrated Christmas. It's become a secular. That's what I mean by a cultural thing. And, and increasingly so as we become a so-called post-Christian society. But there's some weird stuff as a Christian. Some really weird. You might remember these headlines just from a week or so ago on Friday, the 16th of December. Um, some camels broke loose from a Baptist church's uh, nativity scene. You know, and bless their hearts. Um, whoever was supposed to be minding the camels went to sleep or whatever and, and, and they go trotting around the town, um, the Bridgman, Bridgman Downs, I think. In your part of the world, Damon, you weren't responsible for letting them go, were you? Okay. Only two minutes from your house. You didn't get a, get a, a glimpse of them, did you? No. And so we think, oh, man, this is pretty weird. But you know what? From a Christian point of view, it even gets a little bit weirder because... If you're wondering what camels have to do with the nativity scene, which is the birth of Jesus in the, you know, the little stable and all that stuff, you think, well, wait a minute, there's something wrong with the timeline there. And I just want to give a bit of a tilt and acknowledgement of that difficulty. Um, so here's, if you've not heard this before, hang on to your hats because it might surprise you. And, and I guess it's an example of how when we hear something culturally often enough, it becomes assumed to be the truth. Jesus probably wasn't born on December 25. If that's news to you, and if I've shocked you, I apologise, but it's, it's the truth. He may have been, but, but it's just a guess. Um, throughout history, various theories about Jesus' birth, they put it on March the 21st, April the 15th, May 20th, or August 28th, as well as December 25. The exact date of the Son of God was born, uh, the exact date Jesus was born is not stated anywhere in the Gospels. There is insufficient evidence to say for sure when the event occurred. The event occurred, absolutely. But when it occurred, when Jesus' birthday is, we, we can't be sure. It's very unlikely, as a matter of fact, to have taken place during the coldest months of the year, remembering Israel, northern hemisphere, so December, middle of our summer, December, middle of their winter. Uh, it's very unlikely to have occurred then because the shepherds would not normally be tending their flocks in the fields at night in winter. So, why do we celebrate Christmas on the 25th of December? Well, some historians believe it was because the date fell during the winter solstice, an already established pagan tradition that was later Christianised. I don't know if that's a cynical point of view. Many people would argue it's, it's, that's the case. Um, I think December 25, 
among many, many claims and theories, uh, the, was the celebration of the birthday of the sun, S-U-N. And so it's assumed that, oh, that's a clever play from the birthday of the sun, S-U-N, to the birthday of the son of God, S-O-N. And so, you know, um, we know that, that when it became established at the 25th of December, it was sort of after uh, Constantine and, and, and a lot of changes happened in the church at that point in time. So that may be certainly a factor in the background. Another possibility is the assumption that many make uh, that Jesus was conceived when the angel visited Mary, which is estimated at being the spring equinox, which is around March 21 to 22. So the mathematicians can add nine months to that and you come up with, you know, December 25. That's a nice round, a round figure. Maybe, maybe a combination of those factors. Maybe other factors as well. The bottom line is there is no record of the church celebrating the birthday of Jesus in the New Testament. In about uh, AD 200, we know Clement of Alexandria mentions that some were then debating the date of Jesus' birthday. Prior to that, it really doesn't seem to have been an issue that, that was of concern to the, to the church. The first recorded Christmas celebration was in Rome on December the 25th, AD 336. So you see, you know, a couple of hundred years at least after the apostles before this stuff becomes, let's say, concrete. So as a religious festival, I want to say, you know, it's not really biblical. As a cultural festival, I can eat my pecan pies and receive all my Christmas presents with a clear conscience. No. I think it's important that we recognise those, those distinctions. A couple of other interesting things, again, the cultural element, how it influences our mind, and not just us as Christians, but the broader public. There was no innkeeper who turned Joseph and Mary away. Now, if you've, if you've been to a nativity place recently, um, um, sorry, it was misrepresented. Nowhere in the Bible is the innkeeper who turned Joseph and Mary away mentioned. His addition to the nativity story is complete fiction. Some scholars believe that the Greek word kataluma has incorrectly been translated as in when in fact it means guest room. This is really, I find it interesting. They believe this suggests that Joseph and Mary, we know, travelling to Bethlehem, the birthplace of David, uh, as required for the Roman census, Everyone had to return to their to their their place of origin, if you will, to sign up for the census so the Romans could get their dues, hoping to stay with family living in Bethlehem. Uh, that's reasonable, isn't it? I mean, if, if we had to go down to Sydney for some purpose, I'd be hoping that our family would put us up. Pretty normal, pretty normal. Um, when they arrived, however, they discovered the guest room in the home of Joseph's relatives was already full. The problem with having too big a family... They got in there before us. And so now, we're not talking about an inn like a hotel or motel, but the home of Joseph's family was full as they were hoping and assuming that they would be able to accommodate them. Now, that doesn't mean that they put them out, but enough time on that. Jesus probably wasn't born in a stable Again, there's no mention of Jesus born, being born in a stable in the Bible. Just that he was wrapped in cloth and laid in a manger after his birth. Mangers are troughs used for feeding animals. So it's likely, given the previous point, that Mary gave birth in the lower level of a peasant family home where the family slept and where they also housed their animals overnight. Apparently, again, in a poor 
person's home and there's no reason to think that Joseph, well, Joseph and Mary weren't rich, no reason to think that their family was rich. Um, the, it, the, at the ground level, that's where the, the family slept and they slept on an elevated um, slab, if you will, that had uh, a, a, like a, like we might think of it as like a covered carport next to it. And that's where the family animal, usually animal singular, poor people remember, so they might have had a donkey if they were really nudging middle class, they, they might have had an ox. And of course, dug out of the slab that the family were living on was, was a trough, a manger. And so that's probably a more accurate picture to have in your mind when you think of baby Jesus lying in in the manger. There was no star at the birth. Uh, Your nativity scene on the mantle probably has a star at the top of the stable. And again, the the illustration I've got there, you'll notice the, the, the players that are present there Typical of a nativity scene. The star, uh, the stable, Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus, uh, the three wise men, the three magi, uh, and you'll notice also the sheep and the, uh, the nod to the, um, uh, to the shepherds. They're all there, all there. Well, because if you read the biblical narrative, that's not the way it plays out at all. Um, the shepherds, the sign they were given to look for was a baby in a manger. It was the Magi who came after Jesus was born. Their sign was the star. The wise men, and again, we, we often think in terms of three. It may have been three. The association normally seems to be because there were three gifts. There must have been three kings or three Magi, and that, that may, well be, may well be the case. There may have been five or more. Um, but they arrived after the birth of Jesus. We don't know exactly when, but they didn't arrive in Jerusalem until after Jesus was born. Matthew chapter 2 tells us this. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. This happened while Herod was king of Judea. After Jesus' birth, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. They asked, where is the child who has been born to be king of the Jews? And we saw his star when it rose. Now we have come to worship him. It took some time to travel from the east to Jerusalem and down to Bethlehem. And by the time they arrived, it seems Jesus was no longer a newborn infant. Again, Matthew chapter 2 verses 9 through 11 tells us, After the wise men had listened to the king, King Herod, they went on their way. The star they had seen when it arose went ahead of them. It finally stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. And the wise men went to the house and there they saw the child, Pelion, which is specifically speaking of a, ch- a young child but not a baby, as opposed to Brephos, which is the term used in Luke, the child, the baby Jesus, as he was encountered by the shepherds on the, on the eve, on the night of his, of his birth, specifically refers to a newborn, uh, with his, his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and they gave him gold and frankincense and myrrh. And it's really interesting. Some have speculated, I, I think, maybe, um, that the, that the gifts here symbolise Jesus' kingship the gold, the priesthood, the frankincense, and, and ultimately his death, myrrh, the spot, one of the spices commonly used with the, death, with the, uh, the burial uh, um, of the dead. It is very likely, however, 
regardless of what you make of that symbolism, that imagery, it's very likely that it was these gifts that allowed Jesus' family to fund their escape to Egypt. You ever thought about that? How on earth did this poor peasant couple pick up a newborn babe and head down to Egypt for some period of time? don't know exactly how long, but it was a period of time. How on earth did... Well, these gifts, I suspect... With great confidence, we could say it was these very gifts that funded that whole that whole exercise. Um, Herod issues a decree uh, to kill all the boys two years and under in Bethlehem and surrounds. We may assume from this that Jesus could have been anything up to two years of age when the wise men visited with their gifts. Now, a bit different picture than 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 culturally what is assumed. And so, if we come back to that question, what would Jesus make of Christmas? Well. He would probably say it's best to read the Gospels if you really want the facts. If you really want the facts, read the Gospels. I don't want, I don't, it doesn't trouble me personally. Um, you know how you, when you, you read a book and somebody makes a movie of the book and some of us get upset when they think, oh man, no, that. Those writers just mess things up. They've changed the order of things. They've changed, they've messed with the good story. They've messed with the truth. But of course, the nature of the beast is that, that with rendering a movie for entertainment purposes, you've got to try and summarise things that pull together. And so, really, that's quite acceptable. And I suspect that's a fair analogy for what's happened with the nativity scene. They've collapsed all of those different events that, that happen over an extended period of time, at least a year or two, maybe as much as, much as two years, and, and condensed it into one convenient little, little cameo the nativity scene. There's no great harm done in that. As long as we recognise that it is a cameo, that it's not, it's not events as they actually occurred. And why do I say that's important? Because Christianity today is under pressure like it never has been to be dismissed as a bunch of myths. So if we go promoting a cameo, a caricature of the birth of Christ... And somebody can say that's not that's not true. That's not then then the assumption too readily today is to is to say there you go. It's all a lot of rubbish. It's all make believe. They can't even agree among themselves the the events sort of thing. We need to be sensitive to that reality, unfortunately, in our society, and to not feed that monster, as it were. Again, no harm, but as Christians, we need to understand that it is a caricature. It is a cameo. Uh, it's, not, it's not the full historical or accurate historical picture. I think Jesus would commend any acts of goodwill and selflessness that have become associated with Christmas. Though he would wonder why people would restrict such things as loving one another and sharing to Christmas time. When you think about it. I mean, we can be grateful for everything we get. Um, for people of faith, even though their, their faith I might consider not to be biblical in the fullest sense, people who are good, I want to suggest to you we want to be grateful for any faith, any goodness that we encounter to any, to any degree. That's a good thing and I think that's God honouring and, and God pleasing I think Jesus would be grieved by any acts of harm and selfishness that have become associated with the festival. 
domestic violence, drinking to excess, etc., and all of the damage, all of the harm that comes from that sort of thing. But most importantly, I want to say this, he would want us to consider his birth within the larger context of God's plan to rescue humanity from our sin. And I think Craig did an excellent job this morning in his leading of songs for us. And if you reflect upon it, I think we'll recognise that, you know, this is Christmas Day. But the songs we've sung this morning um, are being led around the Lord's table. Thank you, Stephen, for traumatising me. Um, That could be any Sunday of the year. The birth of Jesus is an integral part of the story, the gospel, the life. And that life begins with, with his birth. Emmanuel, God with us, God come in the flesh. And the life. And what a life it was. The suffering, the passion, the crucifixion. The resurrection and the ascension of Jesus to return to the heavenlies. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's why the angels could be so excited when Jesus arrives on planet Earth. Rejoice! Goodwill to all humanity. Peace on Earth. That's the promise that He brought. But Jesus never intended that his birth be focused upon as if it's separated from, in some way, from the full story, which includes the ugliness, frankly, of the cross. And I've tried to sort of emphasise the contrast here in these two graphics, that charming picture of a baby. An innocent, vulnerable babe. But we'll notice that babe grew into a man and ultimately that man became our saviour. And in becoming our saviour, of course, it was necessary that he offer up his life, that he die. And what a gruesome death. Um, Nikolai Gay, uh, a Russian Artist, this is his rendering of the crucifixion and I think he does a wonderful job of capturing the confronting ugliness, brutality of the crucifixion. But that's the full story. That's what Jesus wants us to appreciate, to understand and to grapple with. And when we do appreciate it and understand it and grapple with it, we will come out to understand the bold declarations of Scripture in relation to love. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That giving went beyond the arrival of baby Jesus in a manger. That giving included the life, the suffering, the death, of his son. John 15, just as the Father has loved me, Jesus speaking here, I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain 
in my love. Skip down to verse 13. No one has greater love than the one who gives their life for their friends. And a little bit earlier, in the same context, but earlier that night, Jesus had reminded his disciples, instructed his disciples, I give you a new command, love one another. You must love one another just as I have loved you. If you love one another, everyone will know you are my disciples. Which brings us to this point of conclusion in consideration of the fruit of the Spirit, which for the past few months we've been walking through. The fruit, as we've noticed, singular, it's not fruits, but fruit singular. So it's a, it's a package deal here. It's not sort of something you pick and choose. The fruit of the Spirit are not individual virtues per se. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Love, which heads the list... Love is the vase that contains the bouquet of flowers. Fruit of the Spirit, joy, peace, gentleness, etc., are facets of the one diamond, which is love. What I'm suggesting there, the image I'm suggesting, is that, that love is the container. Love as God loves. I mean, you know, you'd have to be pretty careless in your reading of the New Testament scriptures to miss the emphasis upon love. Rabbi, what's the greatest commandment? Oh, easy. Love God with all your mind, your heart and your soul. And the second one's like it. Don't stop there. It necessarily flows on to love your neighbour as yourself. On these two commandments... Love God, love your neighbour, hangs all the law and the prophets. And I would suggest to you that the same principle extends to the teachings of the New Testament scriptures. Love remains central. Love of God. Love of one another. And in loving one another, we say, well, what does that look like? Well, it looks like joy, peace. Forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. It's not just some sort of sentimentality. It is something that manifests the love of God in our midst towards one another as we seek to imitate God as we seek to imitate the Son of God. So in conclusion, may your Christmas be full of love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. And may every day be that way as you grow in bearing the fruit of God's Spirit in your everyday life.